You know, as, as I was listening to Kurt uh, reading the, the call to worship, you know, there's this verse in here that says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And that verse struck me because it's very similar to what it goes right in line with what we're going to be studying today. And I thought, you know, who looks at the law and says, this is just full of wondrous things. Now, if you're looking at it from a naturalistic perspective, if you're looking at it like these are things that I better do or I'm going to hell, it's not a lot of wondrous things. But when you understand the purpose of it, when you understand that these are moral boundaries that God has set for us for a reason, for our good, you can say that I may behold wondrous things out of your eyes or out of your law. But what has to happen first? Open my eyes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. In our technology-driven, technology-saturated culture, everybody is familiar with the term firewall. Everybody know what a firewall is? Everybody should know what a firewall is. It's not only uh, you know, a part of our regular vocabulary, it's a necessary tool for a computer. If you don't have one, go home and get one right away. Uh, the person who thinks that they can operate a computer that has even occasional internet access without having a firewall in place is taking a gamble on losing not only their ability to do certain things on their computer, or maybe everything on your computer, but they're risking loads of valuable personal information that can be found on their computer as well. A firewall is designed to protect your computer and therefore protect you from losing valuable things from your computer and from having your personal information fall into the wrong hands. Uh, another way that that happens is shopping at Target. but. <laughs> Protect yourself as much as you can, right? But the firewall is basically the gatekeeper, if you will. It enforces security between two networks by monitoring and enforcing rules for incoming and outgoing traffic and information. So if you have a good firewall, it'll give you an alert when you go to maybe a website that has been known to be dangerous, to be, to be risky, or it'll give you an alert when a website or maybe an unrecognized network tries to sneak something onto your computer against the rules that you have set up within the firewall. Now, the entire Christian life is actually meant to be experienced behind the safety of God's firewall, a spiritual firewall. What does that mean? Well, first of all, as we study, as we continue in our study of 1 John, we should remember that John is explaining the differences between true and false believers, true converts and false converts. And he told us back, uh, you know, a few verses ago, one of the key characteristics of false converts is that they are worldly. That is, they are part of this system that is totally antithetical, totally opposite gods. They are completely against God in their hearts, in their minds, in their ways, in their actions. Back in verses 15, and 17, 15 to 17, John wrote this. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, that is not, not the globe, but this system that is against God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. There you go. That's the definition of the world there. 
For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is a big passage. It's an important passage. And it's led us, it's helped to lead us to the point that we're at today. This whole idea of avoiding worldliness is central to the foundation of John's epistle. Remember, he started out by saying that God is light and in him there is no darkness. The world is in darkness. So this whole idea of avoiding worldliness is central to this chapter. And the secret to avoiding the possibility of becoming completely worldly is to have a firewall. To have something that serves as a gatekeeper, keeping carnal, worldly philosophies and ideologies and desires and and false theologies at bay, while allowing the influence of God in our lives to enter in freely. Just like the internet has hackers who are thieves, they want to steal from you, they want to take away your safety. They want to deprive you of of safety. The spiritual realm is also filled with thieves and, and hackers who want to steal your peace. They want to steal your joy. They want to steal your ability to witness. They want to steal your testimony. They want to steal your ability to attest to the truth of the gospel message. And they want to steal your faith, if it were possible. As a Christian, how will you keep these influences? At bay. How will you keep yourself safe? Without question, both Paul and John had this, this principle, this, this concept, this idea of a spiritual firewall in mind when it came to allowing people and things to influence Christians. And John, in particular, uh, you know, Paul was very concerned about it, but in this, in this passage, in this context, John was very concerned about people he's referred to as liars and as antichrists sneaking in and spreading false doctrine in the church. Now, last week we talked about the first level of protection, so to speak. We saw that John told these people that they must allow the basic fundamental, essential truths about Christianity and the words, the the commands of Christ to abide in them and that we must do the same thing. And of course, these things are found in the regular reading and studying and teaching of God's word. That is to say that the fundamental and essential truths of the gospel as revealed and expounded upon in the scriptures are the first line of defense against worldly influence, against us going totally to the dark side, if you will. And one of the ways that God has designed for us to be protected from worldly influence and from false doctrine is by studying and knowing and being able to recognize what is and what is not biblical. But logically speaking, you cannot know what is false unless you know what's true. Let me say that again. Think about this for a second. You cannot know what's false unless you first know what's true. How do you know that 2 plus 2 isn't 5? Because you already know that 2 plus 2 is 4. And so there's a contradiction. So you know that if somebody gives any other answer other than 4, it is necessarily false. Logically speaking, you can't know what is false unless you know what's true. That's, That's the best reason I can think of to study our Bibles, by the way. 
And this is one of the reasons it's so important to come to church regularly, because you will regularly be exposed to the teaching, to the study of the Word of God. It's read, it's proclaimed, it's taught here, and it is central to absolutely everything that we do. Because Scripture is the very Word of God, and because it cannot and it will not fail to accomplish what God seeks to accomplish through it, we can know that it is sufficient for our lives. It is sufficient for guiding us through anything and everything that life might throw at us. If, big if, if we understand it and apply it correctly. And here's where that layer of protection can sometimes become distorted or confusing. One person will say, well, you know, look at this passage here. I think it means such and such. And another person will say, it doesn't mean that. It means this. It means such and such. And it's true. This happens all the time. Scripture can sometimes be difficult to understand and interpret and apply correctly. You know, try applying a a genealogy. Yeah, that can be tricky. Uh, and, and people do have differing, differing opinions on some things, not the central issues, but the external issues. But other times, Scripture is crystal clear, and it is not difficult to understand, and it's not difficult for us to apply. I was meeting with, uh, with some pastors this past week, and one of the things that, that came up, one of, one of the things we started talking about was homosexual marriage. And one of them uh, started getting really boisterous with us, yelling at us about how he, he's so liberal and how there's not a consensus in the Christian community uh, about this issue and how there are different interpretations of the passages which forbid homosexual practice. And of course, the fact, this is important, the fact that there are differing or opposing interpretations of anything in Scripture is completely meaningless. It's completely irrelevant because there is only one correct interpretation of it, which is determined by things like context and, and meaning, linguistics, semantics. And both sides, you know, whether you're on this side or that side of an argument, both sides are trying to reach that point of finding the correct interpretation. But if there are two sides which disagree about a passage, there are only three possibilities. Number one is that neither side is correct. They're both trying to get at this central truth. The second option is that side A is correct. The third option is that side B is correct. The only thing that isn't an option is for both of them to be correct. And this happens with a lot of passages in Scripture. So while reading and studying and applying Scripture is important, it's not always enough. We must also understand correctly so that we may apply it correctly. And that's what John wants to bring us to this week. He wants us to know that there is more than just this outward testimony, which is what Scripture is. It's it's outside of us. It's external to us. And so there's more, he's saying, he's going to tell us, there's more than just this outward testimony which points us to the truth about Jesus. There is also an inward testimony as well. And this inward testimony, this inward witness, is what makes the difference between death and life, between mortification and transformation. 
So John continues in verses 26 and 27. He writes this. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So what's the difference? What's the difference between those who were trying to deceive these Christians and the people to whom John has, wrote, has written this letter? The difference is the anointing. The anointing of the Holy Spirit. We saw a few verses ago, verse 20, that every single Christian has the, what John calls the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit dwells within each and every true believer. And the reason that these false teachers were teaching lies that were contrary to the Scriptures was the same reason that they had abandoned the fellowship of the saints. The same reason they had abandoned this church that John's writing to. It's because they were never part of it to begin with. John makes that crystal clear for us. They were never part of it to begin with because they didn't have the Holy Spirit within them. And so they didn't have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. If they claim to have some type of anointing, as you'll hear some teachers claim to have, it was a false anointing. They were frauds. They, they were not faithful to true doctrine. Rather, those who were faithful, those who held to, to true doctrine, those who did have the anointing were their targets. See, this anointing of God, this being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's the second line of defense in God's firewall for our faith. It's not enough for us to just have that first line of defense, a knowledge of what the Scriptures say. We must also have an understanding of them. And the anointing of the Holy Spirit helps us to identify truth, and it helps us to separate and filter out the lies. It filters out the lies that come at us from, from the world, from various influences, and it prevents those who would seek to undo our faith from getting through and accomplishing their mission. And the Holy Spirit verifies what is true. As Jesus was preparing to ascend into heaven, he made a very important promise. He said to his followers, Behold, this is, this is his last words according to Matthew. He said to this to his followers, Behold, I am with you, plural, I am with y'all, to the end of the age. Always to the end of the age. He wasn't just speaking to a couple followers who happened to be there. No, this is a promise that he made to all of his followers. I am with you always to the end of the age. And to this day, he remains with his people through the power and through the presence and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Christian. See, being in, in relationship with Jesus, it's more than just a, a regular you know, friendship or relationship. It is a life-giving relationship. It is personal. It is intimate. And it is ongoing. And not only does this anointing cause us to become alert when we hear something that is contrary to the Scriptures, clearly contrary to the Scriptures, and to recognize false doctrine, it also helps us to understand the Scriptures. It's like a pair of glasses. 
that you, you know, you, you've been trying to read and trying to read and it's just been blurry and all of a sudden you get some glasses. Okay, now I can read. See, we don't need to be intimidated when we're confronted or when our faith is challenged by an unbeliever because one of the Holy Spirit's roles in dwelling within us is to give us a true and deeper understanding of the Scriptures. And that's an understanding that an unbeliever, that somebody who doesn't have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it's something they can't possibly have. And that's why Paul said, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, that is, to those who are born again, to those who are regenerated by God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Man, that says like everything we need to know. How, how do we understand the scriptures? How do we understand the gospel? Why do we abide in these things? There you go. They've been taught to us by the Holy Spirit. They've been verified. The truth about them has been verified within us. The inward witness of the Holy Spirit. And so somebody might say, okay, well, how do you explain the fact that you'll have two different sides? How do I know who's right? How do I know who's, who's wrong when it comes to understanding a passage? And that's a good question. I think that's exactly what John is trying to get us to. That's, that's the purpose of, of the anointing. You see, true, legitimate Christians can land on opposing sides of some issues. It doesn't mean that both of them are right, but they can land on opposing sides of some issues, non-essential issues, that is, uh, doctrines that don't define the Christian faith and that are not necessary for salvation. And Christians are even capable of going astray. But the reason that this happens is, is really pretty simple. The reason you get people with different understandings of a passage or different applications of a passage even, the reason that this happen, happens always goes back to sin in one way or another. It boils down to pride most of the time. And pride always, always serves as a hindrance to us submitting ourselves fully to the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit that every Christian has. See, when we get to heaven, we, we won't be seeing dimly like we do now. 
will no longer be inhibited or inhabited by sin. The disagreements that we have now over all these non-essential doctrines will be settled once and for all. And every one of us is wrong somewhere. We don't have a full and complete understanding. Now, there was a time in my life when I thought, I've got this all figured out. And anybody who disagrees with me, they're just wrong. I've, I've learned since. I've been humbled since then. But for now, the disagreements that Christians might have over non-essential doctrine will continue because sin and pride continue to cloud our understanding to some extent. Now, I have personally seen, I have personally known great, great Christian men with sharp intellectual, academic minds, I've seen them make absolutely horrible, horrible arguments for some of the non-essential doctrines, uh, you know, some of the non-essential aspects of their, of their belief system. And if you were to look at their lives, it's not that these aren't legitimate Christian guys. They, they, they are. They, they are godly. They love the Lord. They have the good fruit to show for it. But they also love to be right as much as they hate to be proven wrong. And so when their non-essential beliefs are confronted and corrected by a brother or sister in Christ, they remain stubbornly positioned. Even though, even though it's clear as day to everybody else who's watching from the outside that their arguments have been shot to smithereens, that there's nothing left. But we should remember that we're talking about non-essential doctrines here. With the essentials, every Christian remains steadfast and faithful. We remain united as one in the essentials. There isn't a hint of disagreement among Christians that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man, Pop quiz. Anybody remember what that's called? Hypostatic union. <laughs> Somebody got it. The hypostatic union. That's correct. There's no disagreement about that. No, nobody who is a legitimate Christian will argue that Jesus was not fully God and fully man. There isn't a hint of disagreement among Christians that there is one God who is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There isn't a hint of disagreement among Christians that salvation is by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is found in no other way. Every Christian believes that. There isn't a hint of disagreement among Christians that Jesus, and only Jesus, bore the wrath of God on Calvary on behalf of those who would trust in Him alone for their salvation that he died and was buried, and that on the third day he rose again and he ascended into heaven. There's no disagreement in the Christian community on these issues. None. So why is there no disagreement? Why is there unanimous, unwavering consensus on these things? Because by the grace of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit will only allow sin to cloud our understanding to a certain point. There's a line. See, if we, if we try to go astray, if we start going astray, it's like we're a dog on a leash. There's only so far that we can go. The Holy Spirit will only allow us to stray so far. And these are lines. These essentials, these are lines 
that the Holy Spirit will not let the Christian cross if the anointing truly abides within us. And so with all of this in mind, when John says you have no need that anyone should teach you, it might sound like, man, I should see you guys later. You know, we're heading down to California, you know, see you later. I don't have a job anymore. It sounds like I should be out of a job. But if we take the testimony of, of all of Scripture, which is what we have to do, we always have to take uh, the, the whole testimony of Scripture and make sure that there's harmony among everything. And if we take the, the testimony of all of Scripture, we see that that's, not ob- that's obviously not what John was trying to say, that pastors, you can, you can just go home and find another job. Uh, no, one of the greatest virtues of, of any Christian, or any person for that matter, is to be teachable. <laughs> The scriptures clearly teach us to regularly submit ourselves to the faithful teaching of the scriptures. And here's the real kicker for me. We are all called disciples. Right? We're disciples of Jesus. And the very term disciple carries with it a necessary implication of learning. And in order to learn, we must be taught. And we will be disciples until the day we die. So what John is saying is that anything that you're taught, which is contrary or or isn't in accord with the fundamentals of Christianity, should raise red flags. You are able, if you are in Christ, if the anointing abides in you, you are able to identify false teachings as false the moment you realize that it contradicts fundamental doctrine fundamental and essential doctrine. You already know everything that you need to know in order to be justified, in order to be declared innocent before God, in order to be declared in Christ. Sanctification, on the other hand, that's, that's a different story. Sanctification is the lifelong process of growing in personal holiness and, and, and learning. You know, that's a, that's a totally different issue. We're not saved because we're sanctified. We're sanctified because we're justified. So there's always, there's always, doesn't matter how old you are, there is always more learning to be done in the process of sanctification. That's why I say we will be disciples until the day we die. Because there's always more learning to be done while we're being sanctified. As far as justification goes, as far as being declared innocent in the eyes of God, if you are a Christian, you already know everything that you need to know. The anointing of the Holy Spirit has ensured that. So the gist of what John is saying here is that because you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you know enough that it'll keep you, it'll prevent you from throwing your faith in Christ out the window. The things that you know will prevent you from going astray on the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. Because you know these truths, you must use them. You must use them. It's something that you don't just you know, think about in terms of, okay, I was justified because I believe this stuff, now it's not of any relevance to me. No. These things are very important for you to live by. Because you have to measure every conflicting truth claim against those truths. 
That's one of the ways that you're prevented from going astray. is by using your mind. By, by, by thinking, okay, you know, that this doesn't line up. You know, you're saying that I have to be baptized in order to be saved. You know, that, that doesn't sound like grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Uh, that sounds like works. It is. It's an issue of obedience. It's not an issue of justification. So it's an issue of sanctification, but not justification. And when we are led by the Holy Spirit, John says we will abide in Christ. Jesus said, John 15, 5, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believer is to ensure that we abide in Christ. He is our helper. He is our teacher. When somebody goes so far astray, doctrinally speaking, that we would no longer consider them to be Christian, and we see this happen all the time, that is when they, when they deny one of the essential doctrines, the, the, the defining doctrines of the Christian faith, it's not because the Holy Spirit has abandoned them. It's because they were never in Christ to begin with. The anointing of the Holy Spirit was never on them to begin with. They didn't lose it. It's something they never had. That's why John says, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now notice that the word abide is in the present imperative tense. And what that means is that this is a command. And when something is in the imperative tense, it means there's action required on your behalf. It's an action that requires us to continually and to consistently practice it, yielding, deliberately yielding to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, remaining in communion with Christ, in fellowship with Christ. So here we see the beautiful protection, this firewall, so to speak, that God has provided for his people. He's provided the scriptures, and he has provided the spirit. And it's a, you know, you've you got to have both. He gives us the scriptures and the simple message of the gospel through the evangelistic efforts of his people. And he himself provides the spirit to help us understand what the gospel is. To understand the message of the scriptures. And everyone who is regenerated, everyone who is born again has had this experience where you get both. You you, you get the word and you get the spirit so that you understand the word. And so thus, if you are a Christian, you have both the word which you heard from the beginning and as as that's what John calls it. And you also have the anointing which abides in you. Friends, you are, you're meant to flourish and grow in your faith. But in order for that to happen, you must take action. You must spend time in the scriptures. You must spend time in fellowship with God's people. You must spend time in prayer, learning to distill, discern the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. And you take just one of these three things out. Spending time in God's word, spending time with God's people, spending time with God through prayer. You take just one of those three things away, and I can assure you, you cannot, you will not grow. You will not flourish. 
And this is exactly the point that John is trying to make for us. But notice the difference between the Scriptures and the Spirit. John says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you, in reference to the Scriptures. Again, imperative tense, let it. It implies a necessary and intentional effort that requires that we deliberately come back to the same truths over and over and over again, letting them permeate not just our minds, but our hearts. Letting them just soak in and, and, and infiltrate everything. But when we're talking about the Spirit, on the other hand, John wants us to know He's there. He's already there. There's nothing you have to do. If you are really in Christ, that anointing is already there. You don't have to do anything. There's, there's no second blessing where, where the Spirit comes upon you and all of a sudden, you, you know, it's like uh, uh, an advancement, you know, from first degree black belt to second degree black belt or something like that. It's not like that. You have the whole Holy Spirit. Think of it like this room, okay? When I, when I walked in here, the first thing I did is I put a foot in. But did, is it possible for me to come into the room and just keep a foot in? No, I've got to actually come in. Same way with the Holy Spirit. The whole Holy Spirit is already within you if you are in Christ. Now, there's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, or I, I think it's more correct, uh, theologically speaking, to call it uh, the preservation of the saints, but the idea is the same. The idea is that true Christians will persevere or, or be preserved in their faith until the very end, until they go home to be with the Lord. And this doctrine rests on those beautiful words of Jesus. Hebrews 13.5, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Holy Spirit will never leave the Christian because Jesus has made this promise. And Jesus will never leave the Christian. His power, the Holy Spirit's power, the Holy Spirit's influence will always be there. He will always be urging us toward two ends, two things. Really, you could boil it all down. This is what he wants us to do. He wants us to hate our sin more. And he wants us to love Jesus more. And if it were up to us, if that were all up to us and resting just squarely on our shoulders, up, you know, up to our ability to preserve uh, or, be, uh, or persevere until the end, every single one of us would drop off. Every single one of us would fall away. But he will be with us. The Holy Spirit will be with us. He's there. He's already 100% there in order to ensure that we are preserved until the end. In the 30 plus years that they've been holding this 100 mile annual uh, Berkeley Marathon in the mountains of eastern Tennessee, about 1,100 people have participated. It's amazing to me that you can convince 1,100 people to try and run 100 miles. But they try to endure this brutal race. And out of those 1,100, how many do you think have finished the race? 14. 14 people have finished this race. 
This year, actually, nobody finished it. Nobody got to the finish line. And the fact that fewer than 1% of the participants finish this course has earned this race, the Berkeley Berkeley Marathon, the reputation of being the world's most difficult race. And one of the reasons that so few people finish is because with all the ups and downs through the mountain terrain, a runner has to endure more than twice the elevation gain of Mount Everest over the course of the full 100 miles. If you can even imagine that, that's crazy. Another reason that it's such a difficult race is that participants get only a map and a compass to find their way, and there are no rest stations, and there are no medic stations. You're just on your own for 100 miles. The race that God has set before us is way more difficult than the Barkley 100-mile marathon. And it's a race that you and I cannot run. It's not even a race that you and I can qualify to begin on our own power. Try to run it by your own rules. Try to run it by your own strength. I will guarantee you, you will fail because willpower and personal determination aren't enough. But God, but God has provided us the means to navigate this race with his word and the Holy Spirit gives us the power and the direction that we need in order to reach the finish line. It's by his power. It's by his grace. It's by his presence that we cross the line. And this is a race that we must run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Why do you need to study the scriptures regularly? Why do you need to come to church regularly? Because let's be honest, it is so, so easy to get lost or to get confused or to just get tired and weary in the Christian life, or or just life in general. And the length of it can break us down. It can exhaust us. It can deplete everything within us. And for that reason, we must continually find nourishment and correction from the Scriptures and the Spirit. And we must regularly do that in the context of Christian fellowship. See, the Christian life is only experienced by abiding in Christ. This is how we are preserved from going astray. This is how we persevere. We abide. We abide in Christ. This is how we're protected against false doctrine. We abide in Christ. But we must also realize that while the Scriptures and the Spirit protect us from wandering, <clears throat> wandering astray, they also serve a very important second purpose. They nourish us spiritually. They nourish us and they strengthen us. They, they give us life. They give us correction to keep us on the straight and narrow path. And they show us and they teach us the heart and the mind of God through his word and by the power and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We hear and we recognize and we understand the voice of God. And we apply those truths to our lives. You see, the Spirit... The human spirit has eyes and ears by which 
You know, you may have moments in which you experience great and, and, and deep spiritual insight where something just like, it's like a light just comes on and all of a sudden it makes sense. And it's in those moments when you can say with confidence, you know, this, this just rings true to me. You haven't had the time to necessarily think it all the way through, but you just say, you know, that, that, that resounds with me. It's, it's like I, I just know that it's true. Or conversely, you know, you, that doesn't sound quite right. And you haven't had the time to theologically break it down and, and do everything and you know, figure out exactly what's so wrong about it. You just say, ah, there, there's something that's really wrong about that. Even though, again, you haven't taken the time to think it all the way through. It's almost instinctive in a sense. This is the Holy Spirit working within us. This is the anointing doing its work within us. There was a time when Jesus explained why he had been teaching in parables. He said this to his disciples, Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. He said, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Well, what does all that mean, right? He says of the crowd who can't make any sense of what he was saying. You know, maybe they thought he was talking about agriculture or talking about, you know, who knows what. And so he says, seeing, that is with their, with their physical eyes. Physically seeing, they do not see with their spiritual eyes. And hearing, physical ears, they do not hear with their spiritual ears, nor do they understand with their darkened hearts and minds. See, this is why God must give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glorious truths about Scripture as they relate to us and the world around us. God was revealing truth to the disciples. Remember how Peter knew who Jesus was when, when Peter uh, said, uh, you're, you're Christ. You're the Christ. And Jesus says what? He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And God was revealing certain truths to the disciples at that point. But the Holy Spirit wasn't dwelling within them yet. And so when we get to verse 16, Jesus says this to them. He says, But blessed are your eyes, talking to his disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And he leaves it at that. What did he not mention? He didn't say anything about understanding. He's, he's contrasting the disciples with these people who didn't understand. He's not saying they understand because they didn't. Well, well, they understood that Jesus was talking about spiritual matters rather than talking about agriculture, for example. They couldn't understand his words completely. They were just seeing glimpses of what they just, they recognized it to be true. Their eyes and ears were blessed because they observed correctly, but Jesus doesn't go on to say, blessed are you, for you understand, because they didn't. But they would. They would when the Holy Spirit came upon them and dwelled within each of them. That's why Paul confidently wrote to Timothy. He said this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And that's why John's going to say in chapter 5, verse 20, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, he'll say, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that, there's a purpose, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, and His Son, in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the true God, <clears throat> true God and eternal life. And this reminds me of, you know, when Jesus had been crucified and the disciples weren't exactly sure what to do. And so you get the story of two disciples who are on this, this road to a neighboring town called Emmaus after the resurrection. Jesus is risen. But news hasn't gotten to them yet. And they don't, they don't know what to make of everything that's taken place over the past few days. They didn't understand the scriptures. Even though they had spent plenty of time studying them, reading them, and studying them, they didn't understand. Because they didn't understand the scriptures, they were troubled. They were deeply troubled by the fact that Jesus, whom they had correctly believed to be the Messiah, had died. And so Jesus comes to them and he says this to them. Luke chapter 24, if, if you are interested. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27. Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that is that the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then what do we read? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Finally, they understand it. But they couldn't understand it on their own. But finally, their eyes are open and they say, in verse 32, they say, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They had read the scriptures, they had studied the scriptures, they knew the scriptures, but they had not grasped the truths of the scriptures until their spiritual eyes, the eyes of their hearts, were opened. And that's not something that they could do on their own. That's something that God had to do for them. And this is what the anointing does for us. This is how it works. The Holy Spirit is present within us to shield us, to guide us, to teach us, to, to nourish us, and nurture us, to comfort us, and to ensure that we are enabled to grasp the beautiful and marvelous truths of the gospel and of the scriptures as a whole. There's an illumination of the spiritual eyes and ears and heart that is only possible through him. Again, like those glasses that just make everything crystal clear all of a sudden. One of the marks of a false teacher or false doctrine is that they will claim to present new revelation from God. That is, revelation that isn't in the Bible. It's something that God revealed directly to them. A mark, sure mark, of a false teacher. But when we understand what John's saying here, we see that it's not that the Holy Spirit gives us new information on top of the Bible, uh, you know, stuff that isn't recorded in the Bible. Rather, it's that when we are regularly exposing ourselves to the study and the teachings of Scripture, the anointing of the Holy Spirit does two things within the individual Christian. Number one, he confirms them to be true. And number two, he gives us understanding into what the scriptures mean and how to apply those truths to our lives. Friends, without biblical discernment and without an ongoing desire to hold to, to walk, 
and to grow in your understanding and application of the truth of the gospel. You will be like a ship without an anchor, without a rudder, out in the middle of a catastrophic storm. This is why it doesn't matter how long any of us have been a Christian, we must continue to regularly and diligently gather and study the scriptures together. There's always more to learn. And the scriptures, when illuminated by the Holy Spirit, provide protection against worldly influence and strength for persevering and being preserved in this race. By the power of the Holy Spirit, exercising, practicing, using this anointing is how we are protected from false doctrine, from doctrine that would lead us astray. This is how our lives are transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And this is both how and why we continue to abide in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we pray for understanding so that we may apply these truths to our lives. We pray for your conviction. We pray for your teaching. We thank you for your presence, preventing us from going too far astray, preventing sin from clouding our judgment too much. We thank you, Lord, for sending a helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with us, to strengthen us and nourish us. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to love your law, to love your word, and to love you with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, and all of our strength, that you may be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Take me deeper.